The New Testament reading for this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 1 to 35. I read from the NIV version. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There's a centurion servant whom the master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders to the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogues. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him, and he approached the town gate. And a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. When he went up, then he went up and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on. And the bearer stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared amongst us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countries. John's disciples told him about all these things, calling the two of them. He said to them, he said to the Lord, he sent the Lord, them to the Lord, pardon me. Are you the one who has come to us or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind so he returned he replied to the messengers go back and report to john what you have seen and heard the blind receive sight the lame walk those who have leprosy are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Verse 24. After John's messengers left, 
Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxuries are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, amongst those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's, ways, God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts of the law rejected God's purpose for them because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang, we sang the dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a gluten and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's really important I press this button uh, in my wedding video, which is two and a half hours long because I was married to an Ethiopian and they like to overdo things. Um, <laughs> I press mute at the wrong time. So I was muted during my vows and I was audible during the singing time, which again, because I married an Ethiopian, was like an hour and a half. So if you listen to my wedding video, you hear my, as the, the right side of the church can say, my beautiful singing voice for an hour and a half, so I think I've got it right. We're not on mute. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay, so my name is Ben, and I'm really excited to um, share the word with you today. Um, this is a good passage of the Bible. So you don't really, when, you're, when we're asked by Jeremy to share, you don't really get to negotiate on the passage. I just got a good one, okay? Uh, we're going to talk today about this continued sermon series around Luke, Uh, We're now in chapter 7. We're looking today from verses 1 to 35. And the title is, Are You the One? Okay? Tell your neighbor, are you the one? If it's your boyfriend or girlfriend, look deeply in their eyes. (laughs) Are you the one? It is a question in this passage that was asked repeatedly by a person, John the Baptist, who should have known. Okay? Are you the one was coming from John the Baptist to Jesus. He's a person who should have known the answer. It is a question asked by a holy man, a prophet even, and he was asking a question about his cousin. Right? It's not somebody he didn't know, it's somebody he did know. In fact, someone he knew since the very beginning of his life. Actually, before his life began, if you remember his mother Elizabeth, when he came next to her cousin Mary, who was, um, who was pregnant with Jesus, 
the baby John stirred within her stomach because she, he knew his cousin even from before birth. He should have known the answer to, are you the one? Previous sermons today have t- dealt with um, the, the previous part of Luke, which went through a bunch of um, uh, miracles that uh, Jesus did between uh, the, uh, Luke 4 to Luke 6, and then a long sermon in Luke 6 at seven, itself. In Luke 7, we're going to deal with three little stories that I think are really important for us to think about why John was asking the question on the one hand and what we can learn from John the Baptist's question on the other. So, John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist, probably not actually looking like that, but his hair was not known for its beauty, so I picked this picture. Um, also, he was in prison. So when he asked this question, he actually asked the, present, the question from prison. Keep in mind, uh, he, before he went to prison, he had a, a seriously successful ministry. People would come from all over the, the Near East to come and get baptized in the Jordan River. My wife showed a picture of the Jordan River uh, a couple weeks ago because we got to see it ourselves and actually dip our hands in it. My wife, more than most, she was really excited, so she was dipping her hand in a lot. Um, and it's not a very pretty river, so they weren't coming to the Jordan River to be baptized by John because of, like, the scenery. I've been to a lot of places and seen a lot of rivers. Forgive me, it wasn't that nice. Okay? So he was wildly successful in his ministry because people were coming to him to be baptized by, by him, not because of the scenery, not because of his educational training, not because of his um, fashion sense, shall we say, or his diet, all those ho- uh, locusts and wild honey. Um, you know? Amen? They're coming because, because John the Baptist had a real message from God to the people about repentance. So things had gone well, but then they turned. John the Baptist at this point in Luke 7 was in prison. But he was in the kind of prison where they got to have a lot of visitors. If you look at this passage, people were coming to see him. It was kind of like an outpatient uh, prison. So I'm not sure that this kind of like bars on the windows was very accurate. He was in prison. And because he was hearing from his friends who got to visit him quite often, stories about what Jesus had done, stories about the miracles that had happened, he asked the question, he's like, okay, so are you the one, or should we wait for another? So this sermon is going to try and deal with that question. We're going to explore the, the context of it. This is why you might care about that question, and this is why you might think of yourself somewhere in the story. You might not currently be in your best situation. There might be a part of your life where you feel like you were more successful than you are now. There might be a a place in your life that you're not really proud of, that isn't going the way you expected. You you know the the amazing talent that you have, right? Everyone look at you, you're very talented. Not everyone has quite realized just how wonderful you are. Someone say amen to that, right? Um, Many of you really haven't gotten the calling that's in your heart, hasn't quite come through. Anybody in that situation? The thing you believed for, that you knew God spoke to you about, isn't quite manifest today. Right? You might be wanting to hear this sermon if you're one of those people. Maybe you look back on your life and you're guilty. You feel ashamed of the mistakes you've made. Right? Maybe there's things that haven't worked out quite like you thought they would. So if, that's one, if one of those things are you, you might want to pay attention. <laughs> pay attention today. 
Maybe you have questions about your faith, where your faith currently is, or the faith of your childhood that your parents taught you, that your grandma taught you. Was it even real? Maybe in different parts of our life, we're asking Jesus the same question. Are you the one? Or should we wait for another? I'm preaching good so far, yeah? You can smile at me if I'm on track, yeah? Stay with me. So this is a picture I got to take myself. As my wife told you, three weeks ago, we actually went to Jordan for work, and we were driving down the road, and we saw a sign that said baptismal site, and we were like, oh, I wonder who was baptized there. It turned out it was Jesus in this actual passage uh, in, earlier in Luke 3 where John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and that's what it looked like. Not very beautiful. But I think one of the things that's pretty cool about the person who asked this question, again, John the Baptist, he baptized one person in particular, and shall, it say, shall we say it didn't go like normal. I'm going to read from you from Luke 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, by the way, Jeremy and Joshua, when you guys baptize people, you like hold your arm out, you like gently put them down. My dream in life one day is to be a baptizer. Not because of like the spiritual side, because I think I would go head to forehead <laughs> down. I feel like that's how John the Baptist was, just by his personality. He was probably like a head to forehead down kind of baptizer. But as he was enjoying himself, baptizing one person after another, by the way, if your job was just baptizing people all day, you'd have to have fun with it a little bit, right? Right? Anyway. So something different happened in this particular baptism as I was reading. I distract myself. Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, John the Baptist, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So he's like number 347 baptism of the day. And this particular baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. So not normal. In addition, a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Talking about Jesus. So of the 347 before and the 347 after, that one might be, shall we say, memorable. So it's pretty clear from this experience to Jesus, to John the Baptist, the people around, that Jesus was different and he was God's son. Let me put it in, in simpler terms. John the Baptist is asking Jesus whether you are the one after having had that experience a little while before. So I want you to think about your life, where people in this room have had real experiences, real things happen between you and God. Real connections between you and God have already occurred. But still we get to places in our life, tell me I'm not telling the truth, be like, are you really the Lord? Is this real? Is this whole God thing that I've been praying about, going to church every Sunday? You know, I believe it, but I don't know if I really believe it. Maybe you feel right now, like John the Baptist felt right then, that no matter what happened before today, I feel far. Today, I'm not quite sure. Someone say amen. There are parts in your life and times in your life where what you really used to believe, you start to question. You start to feel far. So we're going to go through the outline of the chapter real quick. These are the, the four things we're going to talk about. I want to show you the order. By the way... Um, as often happens on Communion Sunday, we are a little bit late, and I don't believe in talking for a few minutes only, so just prepare yourselves. We might go like five or ten minutes long. If you have uh, kids in children's church, they've already been told that, you know, 
and wait an hour, hour and a half, a little bit longer to come. We've got a lot to talk about. I'm going to go fast, but I, I do want you to have that in the back of your mind. We'll go to around 11.30. So here's the, the, the four things that happen in this particular passage. Number one, it's a fantastic passage. In fact, I was only going to preach about the first one. It's so sweet. It's uh, the healing of the centurion's servant. The second thing that happens is when Jesus raised the widow's son. It really shows some powerful truths about God. The third thing is actually what I started with, which was the question that John asked. Are you the one? So that question doesn't come first in this passage, it comes third. So there's something about the two things that happened before the question that caused the question to happen. Are you with me? Is my English bad or complicated? These first two stories we're going to look at were the things that started John asking the question, are you the one? So let's look carefully at them to try and figure out what they were. And finally, we're going to look at the response of Jesus. Okay? So again, we started number three. We're going back to number one. So here's the first one. It's Luke 7, 1 to 10. Um, I want you to look. The basic idea is this. There's a centurion. A centurion is, in, is a soldier in charge of how many people? It tells you in the name. A hundred. Okay? So he's a centurion, he's in charge of 100 people, and centurion is typically not a person from that particular culture. It's the Roman army, right? But they're not often themselves Romans if they're living on the field. The best guess for this guy, the centurion, is maybe a Greek or a Syrian, someone who is living in Israel, running these 100 soldiers. He had servants. Um, Romans, centurions, are they known for treating their servants particularly well? Uh, probably not, but this one uh, treated his servant. He was concerned about his servant in ways that uh, other people weren't. Uh, if you look at this um, verse 4 and 5, the, this centurion was different. He, it says that he loved the people of Israel as well as he actually built the synagogue. It's unclear if that meant like he got his soldiers to build the synagogue or if he paid for the synagogue to be built. But this centurion was different. He actually cared enough about these people to really invest in the community to, to, and cared about the faith. There's a, a particular um, a group of people called the proselyte of the gate, which are uh, people who live uh, near Jews, who become Jews in name, but for being circumcised. Some people thought that was a little bit too far, but they believe the rest of Judaism. So it doesn't say that's what he is, but it's possible that he's basically almost become a Jew, taking seriously his faith. And that's quite different from most Roman centurions, as you'd expect. I would bet that gives him a lot of credit with his like Jewish neighbors. But when he's like thinking about being, what's above a century? When he wants, when he wants to be a, a thousand dion instead of a centurion, probably not getting very far in his career. Because like you love the Jews more than the Romans. Uh, it's probably not a lot of love. That's not the pathway to promotion. For those of you who want promotion, getting in good with the people is probably not the best way. But for his people, they really did appreciate that about him. If you look at verse 4 and 5, uh, not only did the Israelites uh, appreciate him, they actually were the ones who went to Jesus to argue on the centurion's behalf for this miracle to happen. Right? By the way, um, my beloved forefathers, the Jews, were not known for their inclusivity. Yes? So... Uh, one of the reasons why this happened is because Jesus was known as a rabbi, a teacher, and in order to get a Jewish rabbi or teacher to agree to do something, the best way would be to get another Jewish rabbi or teacher to try and convince them. So the centurion doesn't go himself to talk about his servants. He sends the elders of the Jews, the most likely people that Jesus would listen to, if 
Jesus was like most other Jews. Amen? Um, and their arguments were arguments which were organized in the way that a typical Jewish argument would, would happen. This person has done a lot of these good things. He has built a synagogue. He cares about our people. Therefore, you should do this thing for us, for him. Okay? That's normally how we think too, right? Why should God bless us with the thing we're asking for? Because, you know, I read my Bible like last Tuesday. So, bless me, Lord. Last Tuesday's too early. We usually stack up our good things as reasons for why God should bless us with the thing we want. Right? Right? And it's us saying, I deserve this thing because of the things I've done. If you look at verse 4, this man deserves for you to have done this because of the stack of his good things. And Jesus' response to this is really powerful. It comes after the response of the centurion, which is in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to, you, to have you come under my roof. The stack of things might look good to others, but I know in my heart my stack isn't that high. <laughs> in fact, I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you, let alone to have you come to me. So the Israel style of interacting with people was to stack all your sacrifices. I'm not just sacrificing uh, a dove because those are cheap. I'm sacrificing a sheep because that costs a lot. I sacrifice all my time. I don't do anything on the Sabbath. I go to temple. I, I take care of my family. You're stacking up all of your things. That's that style. We probably have our own way of doing that, right? But this centurion was different. He didn't do the stacking. <laughs> he said, I don't deserve a darn thing. So one of the pictures that this is telling us in this Luke 7 is that the way that Jesus heals people and comes to people is not the stacking style. It's a different style. Let's look at how Jesus responds to that faith of the centurion. He says this in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And what was he so impressed by? It's the differentiation between the old style, the Jewish style of good deeds being why God blesses me, versus the centurion style, though he was an outsider, saying that it is my faith, my belief, my trust, my demand, my request, my calling out from my heart to the only one who can do it because he's willing, not because I deserve it. It's the mismatch between what we think we deserve by the world style and what we absolutely don't deserve because we're sinners. What do we deserve? Hell. Nothing. Death. Because of all the things we've done wrong. You might have done, have done as many things wrong as me, but I know what I deserve. But I also know what God gives. Amen? God is the one who gives and looks at this face that is just signified by these two conversations and said, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Fundamentally, this passage tells us two things. Number one, it tells us that what God really cares about is not our stuff, not our goodness, it is our faith. And number two, he wants to bless not only this elders of Israel group. Who's he caring about? The Gentiles. The ones who don't deserve it because they're on the outside. In fact, they've done us wrong. He is impressed more by the one who is an outsider by the Jewish point of view than they wouldn't even consider talking to. Amen? He flips things on its head. So as John the Baptist is asking the question, are you the one, it's in context of hearing this story that is not the stack of things I've done wrong, 
sorry, I've done right, and it's not my Jewishness that gets me blessed. That story came to John and said, oh, that's different. <laughs> this is a centurion. I, just in this, this area of disease, I think I won't go into it too much. Um, Jeremy said it, but Christians, believers, more than Christians, believers, have been known for a long time as people who love those who are sick and care about those who are ill, right? So it, as this thing spreads, if it spreads, let's think about ways we can be ones who, sh- probably not this perfect example, like physically, <laughs> like there are things, as Jeremy said, that are not the, the right way to take care of it, but there are also things as believers we can do to metaphorically do that for those who are ill, or groups of people who are associated with having the disease. It was his understanding of the spiritual world, the centurions, that got him far. We used to have to go through someone who mattered to get to God. It was the elders of the Jewish faith we got to. But Jesus came in spite of those elders. He came because of the centurion's faith in God. The question, are you the one? The answer is yes. Because the one who is someone who chooses based on your faith, not based on your position, not based on your power. You might be somebody who is new to the faith, or is new to Christianity. Your faith matters more than those of us who know how to, what angle to raise our hands in and know the right way to sing these songs. That's not what impresses God. It's the faith we have in him. Jesus was impressed because the centurion's faith didn't come based on a long time believing. There were no signs. He hadn't seen all those miracles. It looks closer, yet he believed. Let's remember the basics of faith. What's your faith based on? Let's go to the next story. That, by, by the way, that last one would have been my whole sermon, but then I changed it. Um, let's go to the next one, which is also sweet. That's why I added it. <laughs> uh, here's the second story, the kind of second precipitating event that, asked, that caused John the Baptist to ask the question, are you the one? So after verse 10, where this centurion servant was, was uh, healed, then people started following Jesus, because the verse 11 says, uh, his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. So now this, this one miracle has brought along a large crowd with him. He's going to a city called Nain. This, as he gets to Nain, um, another group of people is leaving the city. Uh, they're a group for a different reason. There's one group following Jesus because of the miracles. There's another group leaving Nain because of a very bad situation for a particular lady. Okay? Just geographically, it's interesting looking at the commentaries that there were some caves or kind of hills with caves outside of the city of Nain that were the places where they buried their dead. In most ancient cities, you don't bury your dead inside of the city walls. Any idea why? Smells bad. <laughs> so they would take them out. You thought it was going to be deeper than that, didn't you? Uh, they take them out, um, also for cleanliness, good, good reason. So they usually take them out, and this was convenient for Nain because there were hills with caves right nearby. But this crowd was larger than the normal funeral crowd, and the reason why is in verse 12. As he approached the town gate, that's Jesus, uh, sorry, that's Jesus approaching the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. Two characteristics are interesting of this dead person. He's the only son of his mother, and in Jewish culture, the number of sons you have is directly related to your place in the society and your place in both the society from a spiritual point of view, but also from a financial point of view. You know, boys are helpful financially. As a father of two sons, they're also unhelpful financially, <laughs> given how much they eat. Um, 
Anyway, that's a side point. So he's the only son of his mother, and this mother had another particular characteristic. She was a widow. So again, in ancient Jewish society, your life really did depend, if you were a female, on your husband. Thanks to the Lord, it doesn't do that anymore. Usually the husband depends on the wife. But in that society, if you're a widow, your life is in, in trouble. But you could usually depend on your, your male sons in the family to kind of support you. So she had lost both the husband and now the core thing that she would have depended on, which is that first oldest son. Right? So her life, this, this picture of her walking out of the city with the, the, the funeral coffin of her son who died after her husband died, the reason why they came with her is because the situation is so bad. Right? Are you with me? This meant the woman would be an outcast with little chance of wealth or even honor. They were there to mourn with her. What I want you to see mostly from this one is when verse 13, what Jesus says. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. The compassion that God has for broken people. The, the, this is one of the few miracles in this book where there is no request for the miracle. You don't see the widow saying, Jesus, come heal my son. It is the brokenness that the widow shows that drew Jesus to the widow because of his brokenness on her behalf. Are you with me? For some of you who haven't been calling out to God to help you, God is hearing with compassion your sorrow and your sadness. It doesn't have to be around death. It could be around the situation in your life. Every single one of us has things we're, we're disappointed in and we're struggling with and are hard for us. I want you to hear right now, this Jesus is a Jesus who has compassion and concern and love and connection to your heart because he loves us fundamentally. He feels your worry. He feels your loss, your anxiety, and your anguish. He's not like us who walk past people who are hurting. I feel right now that God needs someone to hear that he feels that brokenness. He feels that sorrow. You don't even need to say it. If you say it, it's good. <laughs> but he feels you. He, he, he breaks with you. Not only that, as this shows, he touched the beer. This is an open-ended coffin. Remember the Jewish style, there are very long lists of rules in order to keep yourself clean. And they spent a lot of time like staying clean because if you were unclean, you couldn't go to the temple, you couldn't do a lot of stuff. So a lot of structures in place to keep yourself clean, one of which, as you'd expect, would be to not touch an open funeral coffin. Jesus could have done this healing in many ways. His decision was to start the healing by physically touching that funeral coffin. Are you with me? The, the, the decision to reach out and to make himself unclean in the Jewish sense in order to, to show his compassion is a big part of what I want you to hear. This one cost Jesus something, right? He had to then make himself ceremonial. Uh, ceremonially, cer how do you say that word? Thank you. you. Just tell each other ceremonially. I don't even want to try. In your brokenness, in the situation that's hardest for you, God comes. And he is willing to get himself dirty. He's willing to, to, to sacrifice a bit for you. Right? In my life, the biggest thing that I had was a father who left, as many of you have heard. In that situation, the brokenness that came, I needed a God who would come down to me and change my view of myself. Because my main worry is I was going to be just like him. Right? And now, being able to be a man with a father and a wife that I've my, 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 
I have tripled the amount of time that my father was married to my mother. Right? I have been there for my sons. Don't clap yet. We've got a little ways to go. But I've, I've been there for my two sons the way my father was not there for me. And that, that changing, that healing came after I got saved. I gave my life to Christ. My, my request to God to forgive my sins was largely related to this issue of being worried about this kind of one thing, about replicating my father's mistakes. And so feeling free from that, not just not doing it, but feeling free, that my life is not structured or organized to do that. I am fundamentally different than him. Amen? When you get healed of the thing, when you feel the compassion of God, it releases you. There is not some latent doubt that I'm going to mess up and do what my father did because I know I'm free in Jesus. And I know that maybe I make my own mistakes, but I'm not replicating that thing. Jesus would come and he would touch and he would reach out. Now listen, you want to get a little Aramaic? No, what's Aramaic? No idea. Aramaic is the language that they spoke in Israel at this time. It's a Semitic language. I want to teach you one word. Ready? The word is translated, get up, or rise, or get up out of that coffin. Because if you look at that verse, let's go back. He says, young man, I say to you, get up. I want to teach you the word for get up. You ready? The word is kum. Say kum. That word means get up out of your coffin and rise and live. Tell your neighbor kum. This is the same word in Matthew 3 where Jesus spoke to the young girl and said, Kumi, that's, the, that's the, the female version. Get up! Raise up. Many of us need to tell yourself in an area of your life. What do you need to tell yourself? Kum. Some of y'all are standing in these coffins in some small part of your life of doubt, of questions about your future or your life or your sin. You are stuck in that place. You need to tell yourself, like Jesus is telling us now, Get on up. Someone say, Kum. I'm preaching better than you're saying. <laughs> get on up. Simple, direct, clear. And that get up comes from his compassion for you. Right? It comes from not being a God far off who is unconcerned about our hearts. It is about a God who hears your brokenness. Whether you think it's a big brokenness or you think it's a small brokenness, it's a God who loves that particular part of you. And he's telling you now, where you feel hurt, where you feel halfway, where you feel like that widow, where my husband's gone and my only son is gone, in that particular part of your life, he says, get up. So, this is our third story, and we're going to make this one quick. <laughs> we already started with it, which is John's question in verse 19 and 20. Calling two of them, his disciples, he sent, this is John, he sent the disciples to ask, are you the one? Who is to come? What does that mean? Are you the Messiah? Right? In verse 20, the men came to Jesus and said, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Again, keep that picture in your mind. John the Baptist, in prison. Bars in front of him, whatever they looked like. He, in his faraway recesses of his mind, he remembers, Yeah, there were miracles. My father couldn't speak for nine months while I, my mother was pregnant with me, and then the day I was born and I, he said my name was John, then he was able to speak, and all my family's been talking about that for my entire life, but that was a long time ago. My, my aunt had a baby without a father. Are you with me? That was a long time ago. 
This Jesus went to the, my cousin, by the way, this Jesus went to the temple and taught old men, young men alike. But that was a long time ago. I was one who put on sackcloth and I ate locusts and wild honey and people would come listen to me and I would tell them to repent and all these important people, would I'd get to dunk them in the water. But that was a long time ago. I'm sitting here now, stuck in this prison, and that feels far. That feels distant. Anybody have a feeling like that? Where these miracles that have happened feel like they happened a long time ago. If you actually wrote your life out, it's actually not that long, but that doesn't matter to your heart. Are you with me? My wife and I were about to leave this country. This summer was our last time. We were leaving, we were leaving, we were leaving. I had, we, were decide, we had done the spreadsheets, stay or go. The spreadsheet, by the way, I live a spreadsheet-driven life, you know, purpose-driven life, spreadsheet-driven life. The spreadsheet was clear. The finances were clear. The career situation was clear. The one for me, the one for Lil, my kids were going to be taken care of in the U.S., it was done. All the analysis was done. We should go. The one analysis I hadn't really done were the what matters most in life analysis. Core principles analysis. Which place would I live where I'd feel closer to God? Here. Which place would I be where I would feel connected to a body of believers? Here. Which place would I be closer to doing my calling? Here. I had done all that big analysis. <laughs> right? And the whole dream of living here was to try and do my small part to contribute to God's bigger kingdom. Anybody in that same situation? You're here? I'll say it again so you can say amen to it. <laughs> Your whole purpose in life is to do a small thing for God's bigger kingdom. Amen? But you then have to deal with regular people in like your job <laughs> and your situation and your challenge. And that, that's, that big idea starts to feel far away, doesn't it? Maybe that's, in, that's, maybe that's not your situation in your work life. It might be your family life. It might be something else. I'm getting hyped now, sorry. It might be something else. But God is a God who wants to remind you, the same God who did those things for John the Baptist when he was young, the same God who did those things for you like last week, <laughs> he's the same God who's alive now. Are you the one or should we wait for another? What's the answer? He's the one. Now, I want you to look real quick. We're going to wrap up with this. The response of Jesus in verse 22. He replied to the messengers. He's kind of braggy. Watch the bragginess. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. So it's kind of an interesting response. Are you the one or not the one? He's like, look at all the things I've done recently. That's not the response I would have expected from Jesus. Can I show you something about that response? That response is almost direct quotes from three passages in the Bible, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 60. And what are those passages about? There are predictions about the coming Messiah. So his question was, are you the one or should we, should we wait for another? His answer was, I am doing the things the one who you are waiting with was supposed to do. Right? So all this guy needed, John, was a reminder of the bigger picture, of the bigger calling. One last thing about John the Baptist. He's in prison in, John 7, and in Luke 7. What happens to him next? He gets out of prison. He gets to preach to a lot of people about all that God has done. Is that what happens next? 
No. Does this dude ever leave prison? Two chapters later, same prison, dead. For sport of some crazy person. So this whole response back to John from Jesus is a whisper to the heart of John. The thing you were believing for is coming. He had compassion enough on John, who was never going to leave prison and didn't need to know this for his preaching ministry. He just needed to know it for his doubting, questioning, unsure, uncertain hearts. Are you with me? God cares enough for our uncertain, unclear, confused hearts to speak a message back to us that, yes, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Amen. Last slide. Take a look. You know Neo? Who's, by the way, who's that? Neo. Who's Neo? The one in Matrix. Did you know the word Neo? What are the letters in Neo? Any, I, hope you, I hope you'd spell them. N-E-O. What are the letters in the one? The same ones. Okay. I'm overdoing it. Point is, he's the one. In the part of your heart, the part of your life, that you're questioning that God who spoke to you before and you're not sure if he's still there. He's the one. Point number one, don't kid yourself. You don't deserve this love from God. That first story, it is not because of the centurion stack of good deeds you have a God who loves you, but he loves you anyway. Number two, <laughs> he heals you anyway. It's not your goodness, it is his love, it is concern, it is his desire for you that he heals you. Number three, he's about the poor. He is not about the rich. If you look at the He's more of the Bernie Sanders than the Joe Biden. I mean, you might vote whatever way you want to vote, but, and I might have voted the other way anyway. But he's the Bernie Sanders, not the vote to Joe Biden. He's about the poor. And not the poor in finances, the poor in heart, the poor in our status. I don't know about you, but when it comes to Jesus, you know, we have education levels or whatever else. I can sound smart, but in my heart, I am poor and broken. I hope you are too. It's really fundamental to faith. So not, no matter how important your friends think you are or how good you look when you come to church and tell your neighbor you look good, particularly if it's that person you were thinking about before, they're the one. No matter where you are in our social milieu, when it comes to God, I know I'm not good enough. I'm the poor one. Amen? Number four, he breaks rules for you. I want you to know you have a God who is willing to get ceremonial unclean for no other reason but to stop what was happening to that woman's son. We have a God who will break rules for you, reorganize your situation because he loves you so much, because he has compassion. He is not just a God up there. He's a God here who feels and connects with you. Finally, he feels your pain deeply, whatever your pain is in. Whatever situation you're feeling with, whatever struggle you are in, you, are a, you have a God who is compassionate. Can we pray? I have another slide. We're going to close right here. Can you close your eyes with me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for being the one. We thank you for being the answer to John the Baptist's question. The guy stuck in prison with nothing to live for because things hadn't gone the way he wanted. And forgive us, Lord, for looking at parts of our life like John the Baptist and saying, I have nothing. It's not going the way I thought. There's many of you in this room who feel like there's parts of your life that are not going the way you thought. They are not going the way you thought. I want you to enter into that part of your life that feels disappointed and feels broken. And the word I have for you right now is that picture of Jesus who left the crowd to touch that funeral pyre, to touch that open coffin because he loved that woman 
his heart broke for that woman. Do you feel that right now for your heart? That you have a Jesus, a God, who loves you enough to right now stop what he was doing. Stop the credit he was being given to reach out to you. There's a real God. Remind yourselves right now. This is a real God who really loves you. This is a real God. The same one who said the same things yesterday and before. He's speaking to you now. If you have something in your heart that you want God to come in on, that you need God to heal you, if you've been asking in part of your life to the Lord, are you the one? In various ways. You don't have to use those words. If that connects to something in your heart, I just want you to raise your hand to the Lord. Everyone keep your eyes closed. Raise your hand up to the Lord, or two hands if you want to. (laughs) There's a God who has stopped the procession to speak to you right now, to be in this room right now. And this is, this is, this is my prayer for us, because I'm one of these people. Dear Lord, forgive me for stacking my good deeds and thinking that was what I needed to do. Forgive me for thinking that it was in my power to get close to God. Forgive me, Lord, for being the one who thought I could figure it out on my own. I need you, Lord. This heart is broken. I need you, Lord. I need to be reminded that without you, I am nothing. But with you, I can be healed. With you, I can stand up. So what that word said earlier, rise up. Kum, have life again. Kum, (laughs) feel alive again in the Lord. Kum, God is speaking to us. He's raising us up again in him. Lord, in this part of our life, we're asking you to open us up again and to heal us. We ask you, Father, come in there. Heal us, forgive us, connect us to you afresh. We have been too far and forgive us for that. We say, Lord, we remind ourselves that yes, you are the one. Yes, the things you said before are true today. I raise my hands like this man on that funeral, on that coffin. I rise up again and say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Thank you, Lord, for giving me life again. Thank you, Lord, for being connected to me. Thank you, Lord, for loving me and for forgiving my sins and for making me one who's alive in you again. I pray this for everybody here in this room, hands up or not. We thank you, Lord, for being real, for being God, for being connected to us. And we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.